Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the show. My very special guest is Cynthia Rodriguez. Welcome, Cynthia. Glad to be here. So Cynthia is a family nurse practitioner and has worked in sleep medicine down in Corvallis Clinic for over the last 13 years. Now, that's down in Oregon. And she became interested in pain science, and she treats pain patients with pain who also have sleep conditions. And that's her main focus of treatment now. But in the past, she's done a wide variety of different areas of nursing, including working in New York City. She's worked as a Peace Corps volunteer, as a rural educator, and a health educator and project officer of the Federal Community and Migrant Health Center. So she's done lots of stuff in the past. She's got a couple of master's degrees in public health and also nursing. So she's well well qualified to talk tonight on the subject of sleep and how can we improve this in order to help our pain symptoms. Let's go back in time a little bit. Where did you grow up and go to college? Well, I grew up on Staten Island in New York City back when it was almost rural. So I've seen a lot of change in the city. I went to a private college there, Wagner College, and my first job was working as an operating room nurse in the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center. I thought I'd do something a little different, and then I went to rural Ecuador. And it was actually there that I realized that well-being is more like public health, good health practices, instead of intensive Western medicine. So that got me interested in illness prevention kind of approaches. I ended up getting a master's degree in public health and worked in public health for a few years before I went on and got my master's degree in nursing and then started my nurse practitioner career. Excellent. So you've been 13 years now in Corvallis Clinic. And uh, what made you go into the area of sleep? It was just a complete serendipity. Mostly they had a job opening and I thought sleep medicine, that just sounds interesting. So I had no prior training in sleep medicine and there's not a trained specialty of nurse practitioner sleep medicine providers. So uh, I learned everything from my colleagues and reading and um I have learned quite a lot. I've had excellent colleagues and trainers too. Okay, so, you know, I know fine well that the role of sleep or lack of sleep has got a significant part to play in chronic pain. So can you describe maybe the science around that? There's been a lot of studies about what actually happens neurobiologically, if you will. Basically, sleep and pain are sort of a bi-directional process 
the more pain, the more sleep disturbance, the more sleep disturbance, the more pain. And sleep impairment reliably predicts the incidence as well as the exacerbation of chronic pain. A good night's rest improves long-term prognosis of individuals with headaches, migraines, chronic musculoskeletal pain. When you have chronic pain, it actually disturbs and changes the brain waves that are associated with sleep and sleep stages. So whether the person is awakened by pain or not, the sleep disturbance caused by chronic pain makes sleep less restorative. With poor sleep and pain and the sleep interruption, you actually increase the glucocorticoids, so you have a chronic stress response. And this has a whole ripple effect on neurotransmitting systems. It can lead to neuronal death. It can affect the function of emotional and memory pathways. So there's a whole stress response that is an outflow of disturbed sleep from chronic pain. In fact, glucose and insulin metabolism changes, certainly mood changes. That's just sort of the tip of the iceberg, if you will. Amazing. You know, from just one or multiple nights poor sleep, there's all these changes that go on in our body that are measured by chemically increase steroids, you know, increased neurocertain transmitters, and those limbic system pathways in the brain for the memory and emotions are all being affected. And um, we become inflammatory in our blood, as it were, in our cells, because we're not sleeping, which is, you know, what we all know from the science of pain is associated with it. So here we are, we've got lots of sleep issues with chronic pain. The question is, really, how can we most effectively help ourselves in this situation? If people have pain disturbance, it kind of helps to know what's going on. Certainly, many people know that sleep apnea, which is one of the complaints we most commonly see, is a pro-inflammatory state. It can increase stroke and heart attacks, all sorts of things. What many people may not realize is that insomnia itself is now being implicated in increased stroke and heart attack, also the same pro-inflammatory state. So whether one has a biological underpinning such as sleep apnea or disturbed sleep from other reasons, we aim to figure out what's going on and what to treat it. So one of the approaches we use if people have what appears to be sort of psychophysiological insomnia. That is, insomnia, people are bothered for a reason, then they start to be worried about their sleep, and then they become hypervigilant, and then they feed into that fear pathway, and then they can't sleep for love nor money. So much of the kind of things that we can do to treat that kind of insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, if you will, for sleep. And it improves almost everybody. It improves sleep in about 80% of insomnia patients. And when people learn techniques to ratchet down that panic response, that vigilance response, it's long-term, even lifetime improvement in sleep. It's the preferred initial treatment for insomnia. And there's no side effects. 
Cognitive behavioral therapy does a few things. First of all, you correct misunderstandings of sleep. So some people have the idea that as soon as my head hits the pillow, I'm supposed to fall asleep. Well, it's normal to take 20 or 30 minutes to fall asleep. So when I have patients that want a sleeping pill because it takes them 10 minutes to fall asleep, I can correct that and their insomnia is, for all intents and purposes, cured. An occasional night of poor sleep is not a catastrophe. It's normal to wake up during the night. Basically, you want to be able to go back to sleep in a reasonable amount of time. When people have poor sleep, sometimes what they do is they try and go to bed earlier and earlier and earlier to catch sleep, if you will. So then they start to make the problem worse because they're going to sleep so early that they're not physiologically ready for sleep. And so they delay the time of sleep onset even further. The behavioral part of cognitive behavioral therapy is looking at the kind of behaviors that improve sleep. In other words, setting the groundwork for good sleep. Most people know things like uh, turning off entertainment or stimulating things like TV, no caffeine in the evening, no heavy meals, no lights from cell phones or computers, that sort of thing. Also, if you have trouble sleeping, don't lie there for hours. Get out of bed so that your brain associates bed with sleep or with sex, but not with sitting there getting anxious and aggravated. So those are a lot of the behavioral therapies. And, and of course, we tailor a lot of them. I often go over with people meditative type of techniques. Many of the people who have insomnia have a bit of an anxious quality to their personality. And we talk about what can be quieting, what can be calming. And they read. Some people get activated by reading, so they can't read. Adult coloring, music, crochet. So you try and find something where they can, if you will, utilize the front part of their brains while the back part of their brains quiet down and calm down. We also utilize things like light therapy, exacerbating or in rather increasing bright light in the daytime, darkening in the evening. We often do things like show people how to use amber lenses. These bright orange lenses will not only reduce the amount of light, but reduce blue light by about 50%. So light is the most important tool that our brain has to know whether it's time to wake up or time to go to sleep. So if you have bright lights, like from computers or TV in the evening, you completely mess up your body's 24-hour sleep-wake schedule. So that's cognitive behavioral therapy, and there are more things, but that's kind of the highlight. If possible, we also talk about exercise. Exercise actually increases deep sleep. So there's light sleep and dozing. There's sort of regular sleep, stage two. Stage three or deep sleep is the kind of sleep that if you have a toddler who falls asleep in a car seat and you pick the toddler up, change their clothes, put them back to bed and they don't wake up, that's that really profound sleep. It's different than REM or than dream sleep and some people don't know that. But 
deep sleep or slow wave sleep, you actually are producing growth hormone. It's very deeply restorative. And exercise can actually increase this deep restorative slow wave sleep. In fact, as little as 10 or 20 minutes of exercise can profoundly increase this deep sleep and this restorative sleep. So we encourage activity wherever possible. That's wonderful, Cynthia. You know, I must admit, I'll be honest here, when I heard your talk in Lebanon back in January in 2019, where we met, I got a little bit confused with the amber light and the blue light, and I got them mixed up. <laughs> and um, but So it was really good tonight just to hear that again. So it's the amber lenses. So you can buy either amber lens like glasses, or are we talking about amber lights, like light bulbs? Like how does that work? Well, very good. A little bit of both. We sell at cost in our clinic. Amber lenses, they're actually sort of safety glasses and they're really bright orange. And they actually block out blue light. So while any color of light helps our brains wake up, we are specifically wired to be sensitive to the blue wavelengths of light in white light, kind of like the blue sky. And that's what our brains specifically perceive as daylight. So these amber lenses, when you put them on, they'll kind of change the colors of the room. They block out all the blue light. So things will look gray or colorless if they're blue. A lot of times if people have a little difficulty with sleep initiation, and we go through setting the stage for good sleep and good behavior and what that are conducive to sleep and quieting down, using those amber lenses one to three hours before bedtime can very significantly help people. Usually you need to use them on a nightly basis for a while. There are some people who feel the effect so strongly, it's almost like a sleeping pill, but those are very few in number. For most people, what it does is it sets the stage for the appropriate neurotransmitters for sleep to be enhanced. You can change your neurochemistry by flipping a light switch on and off. So to get ready for sleep, if your brain doesn't see any blue light because you're wearing lenses, your brain will think, hey, it's dark, it's nighttime. Let's produce our own endogenous melatonin. Let's get ready for sleep. You asked about light. If people can't wear lenses or it's too cumbersome or their glasses are too big to fit the lenses over, you can actually use a bug light, those yellow lights that the bugs are not attracted to because they have yellow light, they don't have blue light in them. And so that's sort of the next best thing. So in the evening, for example, if people like to read to quiet down to go to sleep, I say put a yellow light or a bug light in a lamp that they're going to read by, and that will at least cut down the volume of the light and those blue-colored lights that interrupt people's signal to sleep. And one other thing you mentioned at the talk, and I've been doing it myself at home now, is you know, my iPhone, when a certain time comes, me 10 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, just programming for nighttime, and then it has an automatic light change. And I think that's exactly what's going on. There's like a dark gray color to it. And is that related to the same thing? That's absolutely the same thing. So iPhones, and I don't know about Androids, 
have a night setting. So not only does the illumination dim, but it shifts into warmer, amber, orange color. There's a really nice program called F.Lux. F.Lux. It's a very nice app that you can get for Windows, I believe. And it knows what time of day or night it is and can automatically dim your computer, your laptop or your desktop, dim it down actually sometimes quite dark and quite orange so that you have minimal disruption because of light. Of course, if you're on a computer or an iPhone, you still tend to be entertained or enthralled by whatever you're doing. So you still have that, but at least you're not getting the light signal that disrupts your body's signal to sleep. Well, that's great. That's a fantastic tip there at f.lux, L-U-X. Now, we've talked about practical things, you know, that we can all do. What about a few other options? Maybe these things are not quite working and where would we go next after this? Well, we see a lot of sleep apnea and the vast majority of sleep apnea is not noticed or discovered or treated. Most of the sleep interruption from sleep apnea is only a few seconds long. The majority of people with sleep apnea don't even wake up or don't even realize their sleep is really bothered. You don't have to have a lot of oxygen desaturations, that is a lot of reduction in your oxygen or airway blockage to have sleep interruption. Some people are very sensitive to that airway relaxing just a little bit. And women more likely than men are experience insomnia because of their sleep apnea. In fact, looking at sleep disordered breathing They think maybe up to a third of insomnia cases are related to some amount of disruption in airflow. Sometimes it's as simple as things of noses being congested or having nasal blockage or deviated septums. And sometimes people use things like nasal dilators. Most people know what breathe right strips are and they can open the nasal passage. They're actually nasal dilators that work from the inside to prop the nose open. But those are only good if you have restricted flow through your nose. Those don't help if you have restricted flow through your airway. So, of course, working in sleep medicine, we do evaluate even for those cases of sleep apnea that are not very obvious because when we treat them, it can be life-changing. Most commonly, we do treat with a CPAP But if people have very mild sleep disturbances from just a little bit of airway relaxation, there are even oropharyngeal exercises that one can do to strengthen the airway. In fact, a lot of people have heard that if you play the didgeridoo, that Australian sort of alpenhorn kind of thing, you're practicing something called circular breathing. You're breathing in through your nose while you're exhaling through your mouth, and that tones up these oropharyngeal muscles. And for people that have very mild sleep apnea, a lot of times that kind of exercise is good enough to strengthen the airway and to eliminate very mild, I must say, sleep apnea. Sometimes people do fine with a dental device. We kind of discourage surgery. It's not really that helpful. Weight loss can be very helpful. In fact, exercise 
even if you don't lose weight, exercise has been shown to decrease sleep apnea. Not really sure why, maybe you have a shift in body fluids. So depending on the severity of your sleep disordered breathing, there are a variety of options that can be used. Wonderful. Now, tell us a few of the over-the-counter medications that the pharmacist can advise on this subject as well, and the doses as well, please. Many people will buy the -the over-the-counter sleep aid, and mostly what's in that is Benadryl or another older generation antihistamine. And they can indeed make people sleepy. They're not our first choice for several reasons. If people take them frequently, they tend to get tolerant of them, and it doesn't really help that much over time. If they take them frequently, however, they don't tend to get over any kind of residual hangover that can be had. They are classified as anticholinergics, which means they kind of mess up the brain chemical that already gets messed up if you have Alzheimer's. So these Benadryl kind of preparations, especially as people get older, are really not that helpful. So if people use Benadryl and they use it rarely, that helps. Sometimes I say, if you are going to try Benadryl, get the children's formula. And the standard tablet of Benadryl is 25 milligrams. Try 6.25, try 12 and a half, because some people are sensitive enough that a little dose of Benadryl every couple of weeks, smooth things out, that's probably a reasonable way to use it. But commonly, nightly, no, that's not a very good way. It's more harmful than helpful. Many people know about melatonin, and melatonin is usually taken at the wrong time and at the wrong dose. So only a few people, when they take melatonin by mouth, get really sleepy. And it's more likely that older folks get more of a sleep-inducing effect from melatonin than younger people. Melatonin helps signal the brains that it's time to sleep. So in sleep medicine, one of the things we do is we tell people to take 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams of melatonin, so about a tenth of the normal over-the-counter dose. And we tell them to take it five hours before bedtime. Because five hours before bedtime is when your brain produces its first little drops of melatonin, if you will, as a countdown to sleep time. So when people have trouble initiating sleep, these ultra-low doses, kind of like the amount of melatonin your brain naturally produces, these ultra-low doses of melatonin five hours before bedtime and coupled with amber lenses and quieting activity, if people stick to that and a 24-hour sleep-wake schedule across the week, that really eliminates almost everybody's sleep problem, insomnia problem, that doesn't have another physiological basis like sleep apnea or restless legs. When certain medications or certain hormones are given in one dose, they have one effect. When they're given in another dose, have different effects. And sometimes when people take these really large doses of melatonin, it doesn't really seem to be sleep-inducing. So the very low doses are more helpful. 
By the way, Wayne, sometimes people give their young children melatonin to help sleep. Melatonin is related to sex hormones, and it's really not a great idea to give kids melatonin just for the heck of it, unless directed by their pediatrician. Wow, that's a new one on me. Wow. Okay, well, my kids won't be getting any melatonin. <laughs> Most of kids' sleep problems have um, to do with 24-hour schedules. Yeah. And in our culture, we tend to put kids to sleep so late that they start to get wild up. So sometimes when children have difficulty going to sleep, you're actually better off putting them to bed like a whole hour, hour and a half earlier if they're young and catch that normal circadian sleepiness before they get the second wind. And if you blow past your body's sort of natural inclination for sleep, then you really can be up for a couple of hours. Well, listen, Cynthia, it's been amazing. I really appreciate the in-depth conversation. I'm sure you've got lots more to talk about, and maybe that's for another, another show. But, you know, you've given us a wealth of information. I'm sure the audience has has received many perils from you. I just want to recap what you said at the end. Almost everybody can fix their insomnia if they do four things. One, get a 24-hour schedule going. Wear those amber glasses in the evening. Get that low-dose melatonin, like a tenth of the dose. Right, 0.3 to 0.5. Sometimes you have to find them in specialty places, or you can get a one milligram dose and split it in half. Yeah, one milligram and half it, basically. And then reduce your activity in the evening and just prepare. Sleep hygiene is how I would say it. But yeah, so just prepare for sleep with your body as well as your mind. And if people don't have amber lenses, just bringing that volume of light down as far as possible and reducing blue light especially, that will really help. Well, listen, thank you so much. I've learned some stuff again tonight, uh, as I did my first time with your talk there So in Lebanon. But listen, I um, appreciate it. It's been really good to see you, and um, I look forward to seeing you again sometime. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. Take care.